Bert Cohen here, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Privacy is important for dignity, don't you think? But 1984 was really nothing. In 21st century America, Big Brother is bigger. In preparing for today's discussion with the veteran private eye investigator about her unique perspective on today's surveillance culture, the New York Times of August 29th featured a story about the surprising surveillance and exposure of highly personal information being used against a campaign for Congress. It's an ominous example of our topic today. And this is from the New York Times. A former CIA officer running for Congress accused a super PAC aligned with Speaker Paul Ryan of improperly obtaining her entire federal security clearance application, a highly sensitive document containing extensive personal information, and then using it for political purposes. Abigail Spanberger, the Democratic candidate challenging Representative Dave Bratt of Virginia, sent a cease-and-desist letter to Corey Bliss, the executive director of the Congressional Leadership Fund, which has raised more than $100 million to help Republicans in midterm elections. She demanded that the super PAC destroy all copies of the form and agreed not to use the information in any fashion. She writes, I write as a former civil servant as an American. In shock and anger that you have tried to exploit my service to our country by exposing my most personal information in the name of politics. Mrs. Uh, Spanberger, who's 39, said in a letter that she had clear evidence that the Congressional Leadership Fund had provided a copy of her security clearance application to at least one news outlet, adding, I'm not aware of any legal way the CLF could have this document. She added, I just happen to be the canary in the coal mine. (laughs) End of story there, but this is just the beginning of it, and uh, boy, this is something we need to be aware of. Our guest today is Tom Dispatch contributor Judith Coburn, and from reading her piece titled, Goodbye to All That, a private investigator on living in a surveillance culture, I get the impression that that coal mine is incredibly large. All of us are exposed whether or not we want to be. Judith Coburn, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, thanks for inviting me. I get the impression, uh, the 21st century, big brothers are aiming their deep surveillance not on suspected enemies, but on all Americans. And that is a big difference from pre-9-11 America. Uh, Our guest tells us about a government heading into the shadows in a way that would have left the founding fathers, those ancient checks and balances guys, horrified. Coburn writes, the freedom and community that Internet utopians promised us 
has led instead to the scraping open of our lives by law enforcement, social media, hackers, marketers, and the world's governments. After 40 years as a journalist for a variety of media outlets, Judith Coburn became a private eye specializing in death penalty cases and searches for people whom filmmakers and writers want to find for their movies and books. Uh, As a veteran private investigator whose job has been actual footwork, tedious hours of stalking your subjects, street work, as you write, shouldn't a private investigator or PI uh, like me, be as happy as a pig in mud. Uh, I had to change that a little bit. Why are you not? How, how? Why are you not happy as a pig in mud? How did you come to write this article titled uh, "Goodbye to All That"? A private investigator living in a surveillance culture. How did you en- end up writing it? Well, I I felt there was such a contradiction to the sort of idealistic ideas I had. Uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and, and still actually do, you know, kind of an, an ACLU approach to privacy. And yet here I was in this profession in which, uh, you know, invading people's privacy was what I was supposed to do. Um, and so I try to say in the article, you know, situations are different. You know, I I can't, uh, it's kind of a ridiculous position to be in with, you know, Facebook and Google and everybody, uh, you know, spying on us and trying to uh, get all the information they can. It's kind of ridiculous to be down on the ground going, should I follow this woman around because she's cheating on her husband or, you know, uh, should I should I try to find this person who... Uh, somebody wants to invite to a wedding. I mean, there are some really great things about being able to find people. Um, But of course, when I tried to find this elderly nanny for a guy who loved her and was out of contact with her and wanted to invite her to the wedding, I mean, I didn't ask her permission uh, whether she wanted to be found or not. Ah. And, you know, it's possible she didn't want to be found. I mean, as it Turned out she was thrilled and she went to the wedding and so on and so forth. But, you know, there are a lot of questions about all of this if you're a professional private eye, uh, in spite of the fact we know the larger picture is grim. Um, you know, I think the, the real difference between the 60s idea about privacy and the situation now are the marketers. I mean, that's who's, you know, after us more uh-huh. than... Nixon wiretapping us. Um, so that's kind of why I wrote the article. It's just full of conflicts for me as a, oh. as a private eye. So in a way, it makes the job of a private investigator being, it makes it easier. But in another way, I wonder what it does to the demand for professional private eyes. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, uh, the internet has, you know, overturned private investigations, just like it has journalism and you know, the taxi business and everything else. Um, because, you know, they're now, I mean, you turn on the Internet, and um, first of all, there's no no way to look up anybody's cell phone numbers. You know, there's no oh, that's a good equivalent point. of the white pages of the old days. I know. It's and so there are all these, uh, you know, services saying, I can find this person, I can find that person. And they're all trading in a very small, limited amount of way. Uh, of the information they have, and it's very exploitative. I mean, I've had 
at one point I did a test and they were all starting to see if they were any good um, because they're different than the databases that you have to have a license and so on to have access to. So I just registered on, you know, a couple of them. Uh, they were advertising hard sell on the Internet. And they they basically had nothing. And then what they did, what they do is they offer you one free search, but they demand all of your information. Um, and uh, then they start billing you uh, by month off your credit card. And it took me six months <laughs> to get these people to stop charging me. Oh, so, so there's just, it's just the Wild West out there. You know, and then people think, oh, well, I don't need a PI because I can just get on People Search or whatever, you know. And um, it's not true, but, you, you know, well, people do what they do, so... People still like their privacy, and I guess that's, you know, one of the uh, words in private investigator is private. And, you know, it's this private stuff, and, you know, it's not easy. It's purposely, <laughs> intentionally not easy to get private personal information about people, or at least it didn't used to be. And uh, interesting about the marketers. I sometimes wonder about... Some of the things that are advertised, uh, uh, services for uh, finding out about who's a good uh, repair person in the area. If it's not really, if they make their money by gathering the information of who signs up for it, who inquires about it, and then selling it to, to big marketers, that that's where their profit really comes from. I mean, somebody's yeah. watching us for sure. Uh, and what hoops did you used to have to jump through to gain access to databases, and how is it now? Um, well, I should probably explain to people, because a lot of people don't know about these databases. Uh, there, There is a very big, extremely competitive business of companies like IRB Research, TLO, Tracers. I'm not saying anything bad necessarily about these people. It's a business. And they aggregate information any place they can find it, you know, phone bills, utility bills, um, all sorts of businesses uh, cooperate with them to give them information, your credit reports. And it used to be that that was, um, you know, quite protected in the sense that when I uh, tried to be a subscriber to several of these when I was setting up my business, I had to actually, uh, besides showing that I was a licensed investigator, which anybody can find out from a state, uh, you know, government website as to whether somebody's licensed, um, somebody actually had to come to my house. They had to, and I had to have a burglar alarm on my the outside of the office. Um, I had to have a lock on the uh, on the door into where I kept the files. I had to keep locked files. I had to have several passwords on my computer because you do all this research on their websites on the computer and you download information. So they want to make sure nobody could break into your house, steal your computer, and get these uh, records. Oh, but now all you have to do is sign up <laughs> 10 years later. I mean, you still have to show you're a, a licensed investigator or a, a licensed attorney, but, you know, nobody comes to your house and looks at whether any, you know, your office and looks at whether any of this stuff is protected. So, and, you know, there there are um, laws now that say, uh, you know, privacy laws that have been passed in the federal and state level that say, 
you know, this information can only be used for, uh-huh. um, you know, consumer protection, for legal action, for whatever. And you have to check those things before you can do a search. But, you know, again, nobody comes and enforces that. So, uh-huh. you know, once somebody gets a subscription to one of these databases, you know, they can pretty much do what they want. My goodness. Yeah. So I can, I'm just picturing all that information just being out there, as you say, in the Wild West. Now, before reading your article, I had never heard of something called uh, huge online database brokers. What What is mm-hmm. that? That's that's a whole new animal to me. Well, that's what I've just been describing. Oh, I see. Uh, these are big data uh, companies that collect data any place they can get it. Uh-huh. And so you can run somebody's name or you can run the business. You have to be a subscriber. They're not open. Um and, yeah, so it's a huge business, and, um, you know, peop- uh, they're used for background checks for um, people applying for jobs um, and, you know, anything else you can, uh, you know, trying to find a witness in a case, you know, anything you want to do as long as you're a subscriber to, the, to the, that particular database. Well, we've had various ages in history. We had the uh, Industrial Age, the Oil Age. Now we have the information and data age. It's amazing to me. And people got all flustered and and surprised within the past year or so when it was revealed that Facebook was sharing data. I wasn't I figured, uh, of course, that's what they're all about. That's where they make their money. That's where they make money. What do you mean? Why were people surprised? That's the purpose of the whole thing. Of course they do. We should know that anything you put on virtually anywhere, I guess, is... uh, you know, open for business. They can do that. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about privacy and access to that. And we're talking with Judith Coburn, who has a uh, unique perspective on it, having been a private investigator. She has a piece called uh, Private Investigator Living in a Surveillance Culture. And when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate in the 1990s, there was a bill to ban the use of RFIDs, radio frequency identity. There were little chips, I guess, that clothing manufacturers could put, could implant in products to track customers and learn who knows what about them. The, do, the bill failed due to pressure from retailers. I guess that was an early example of uh, the new age wow, that's opened up. I've never up. heard of that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they. I That's guess. Amazing. Well, I guess it was partially to track, uh, you know, see if somebody's uh, stealing stuff, but also oh, yeah. uh-huh. they could track a lot of stuff from people and these tiny little things that could fit into the clothing, and we failed because a lot of us liberals like myself and genuine conservatives kind of like privacy. We don't want you know big interests spying on us all the time. Surveillance capitalism, the term you use is also new to me. What is surveillance capitalism, and in what ways has it disrupted the private investigation business as much as it's ripped through journalism? How have they done it? Who can see what? What is this surveillance capitalism? Well, I I refer to it, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people like the ACLU and stuff have their own definitions, but I refer to it, see, I think that this is essentially the new thing from you know, the 20th century, and that is people selling information. So it's capitalism in the sense that these 
data uh, brokers and Facebook and Google. I mean, do you think they don't sell our information? Um, I mean, anybody who has a Facebook or a LinkedIn account uh, is basically giving these companies incredible amounts of information about not only you, but about anybody you talk about or photograph on, you know, you post a photograph on on Facebook. Well, they're all working on facial recognition now. So, uh, you know, the police could have a picture of a demonstration and uh, they could, they think, uh, facially identify people in the, you know, in the picture. Then they could go to their Facebook account or their LinkedIn account get the information off of there. It doesn't work too well, though, because one of the things that happened, Wired Magazine had a hilarious article about this that I linked to in my article, which is that they, uh, the you know, the don't think these are people. These are computers and algorithms, right, formulas to find out information. So they had um, gorillas confused with black people. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so oh. uh, it doesn't work quite as well as oh Amazon God. is now uh, oh. doing a lot of marketing around facial recognition and just selling a camera that claims, you know, that it's better than regular, uh, you know, um, cameras to identify people. But, you know, these, <laughs> these are computer formulas, you know, they're not people, and um, a lot of mistakes can be made. Um, imagine if, you know, law enforcement arrests somebody because they say it's uh-huh. X and the person is Y. I mean, it's, there's a famous ca- case in Oregon where a lawyer was arrested by the FBI because they said that his fingerprints were on uh, a backpack that was left at the scene of the big bombing in Spain. Um, you know, the terrorist bombing in Spain, uh, I forget whether it was, um, years ago on the bus system or what, but anyway, it killed a lot of people. So they arrest this guy in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, they say, here he is, you know, here's, here's one of the, the, the plotters. And, uh, the Spanish police actually looked at the match that the FBI made between this guy's actual fingerprints and the fingerprints on the backpack. And, and they said, this isn't a match. This guy isn't involved in this. And, you know, he ended up suing the FBI and so on and so forth, collecting. But, you know, this stuff, I mean, people think this stuff is so accurate, you know. On the other hand, we're all just completely uh, giving them everything they want by being on Facebook and LinkedIn. I mean, I'm not on Facebook or LinkedIn. There's no way I would be on those sites. Uh, a Luddite, huh? Think, well, that's in LinkedIn. When LinkedIn started, yeah. I, you know, I was like in my, you know, phase of let's try all these things out. And so I signed up for LinkedIn and found out six months later that because, you know, when you're um, on your computer and you're connected to LinkedIn, you know, you're on the internet and it's a two way street. And they came on our computers, the early people who signed up scraped all of our contacts out of our contact list and then sent out marketing uh, emails to everybody saying, Judith Coburn wants you to join up on LinkedIn. So I'm getting these emails from my oh. friends going, what's LinkedIn? Why, why do you want me to sign up? I'm going, what? You know, I never agreed to this. So, in fact, there was a huge class action suit, which I was part of, hmm. um, and we got a settlement. I mean, it's outrageous. Without anybody's permission? 
Yeah, one wonders. You know, and, I was just going to say, I, you know, sometimes if I'm on my computer, which, by the way, an old lawyer friend of mine 15 or so years ago said he considered his computer the enemy on his desk, you know, looking right at him. <laughs> <laughs> he, right. he was right. But, uh, you know, they ask, can we share this information? And I, I always say no. But <laughs> how, you know, I feel like, wow, at least I didn't give them that information. But it sounds like, I don't know, maybe that's even superfluous, that they don't need a lot of permission to find out where you are. I mean, they find, want to find out your specific location and a, and a lot of things about you. And I, I, Yeah, no, they don't. I mean, there are certain laws, but, you know, yeah. they violate them all the time. I mean, the AP just reported in the last six months that when you change all your privacy uh, you know, settings at Google to being the strongest ones, um, and not to share information and stuff, um, and not to archive the information. Uh, that's supposed to, you're supposed to be allowed to do that. They're still archiving it anyway. Oh. I mean, they just really don't. Pay. I mean, these companies, Google, Facebook, these big companies, man, they don't pay Amazon. They don't pay any attention to anything. Oh. You know, <laughs> well, this they is see themselves as disruptive. You know, simultaneously, they see themselves as disruptive of everything, and that's good. And then, you know, bringing us, you know, peace on earth and everything else. I mean, that, you know, because they believe they have some higher power and some, you know, higher, higher power to do whatever they want. I mean, they don't pay any attention to any of these things that we say, uh, you know, protect my information. I mean, you know, they say they do it. And then, uh, you know, Facebook. Zuckerberg's backing up every two weeks about, you know, what Facebook is actually doing. I mean, I remove, a after every session at the computer, when I'm going to turn the computer up, I remove all the cookies from all my browsers. So, you know, that's one way to kind of slow them down a little bit. But that really only has an effect on the advertising you see. Um, and with, you know, you know, 300 and some million Americans... Who knows how to do that stuff? I mean, you're a, a private investigator. You think about these things. You're aware of this stuff, of what the interests are and what, you know, data might be important and valuable to somebody else. Most of us don't even think about it. So, you know, it is... Well, you know, I, I consider it part of my job to protect the privacy of my clients. I mean, uh -huh. I can't do anything about them going, putting things on Facebook. I mean, it's like... You get a client who's accused of murder, and you go on Facebook, and he's got all these pictures of himself with guns and his friends, you know, doing rap music, talking about killing the police and stuff. Uh -huh. You know, that's going to be shown to a jury, and is routinely, you know. Well, <laughs> the first thing the cops do when they arrest somebody is look look on their social media and archive it all, so that it can be used in in a courtroom. <laughs> well, I, I've I've believed for a long time that that criminals often, you know, they're their own worst enemy. They do dumb things. You know, they brag about the crimes that they've done. You know, and we're, we're talking about uh, uh, tech here. You know, high tech and how pervasive it is. And you write that juries love tech. Many jurors think tech is simply science, and so beyond disbelief. End of quote. They have a belief in tech's magic powers. Now, it seems to me that for most of the last hundred years or so, the FBI and other police crime labs 
were venerated as a remarkably effective way to use science and technology to solve crimes as could not be done without the labs. The use of fingerprints and DNA samples and, and it should avoid uh, you know errors <laughs> uh, and, and, and save pe- innocent people. But mistakes have been made, as you say, fairly often. How different qualitatively is today's science and technology? It's how closer to foolproof is it or or what? What's the reality here? Well, it's not foolproof at all. As I gave you the example of uh, right. the guy, uh, the lawyer in <clears throat> in Oregon, um, and also there are mistakes with DNA. See, everybody thinks you know because everybody watches TV. Of course, why yeah. not? Um, and you know, DNA is not fallible. Um, and there's actually a very interesting. Uh, complicated privacy issue that started, which is that this serial killer in California was found uh, because of DNA, which didn't exist at the time that he right, was killing right. all these women. Right. But what what the, the police were sure that this guy was the serial killer. So they went to his family and asked for DNA samples. And then they had a D- then they got a DNA sample of his, you know, by uh, you know the cops do this all the time, you know, meet meet some suspect at McDonald's and uh, or some fast food place, and uh, buy the guy a coffee, and then they got the DNA on the cup. Right, right. So, so the question is, whose privacy is being violated in this situation? What about his family? What about him? What? You know, this is a, another turn in the, uh, you know, in the in the in the drama of all this. But these things are not are not fallible, and everybody thinks that because they're mechanical or because they're tech, you know, that they can't be wrong. But in fact, you know, DNA matches can be mistaken. Sometimes it's human error of somebody making mm-hmm. the match. Cell phones. Everybody thinks you know when you make a call, the police know exactly where you are. No, they know the cell phone tower that your call went through. And if it happens to be a very busy area, uh, your your call may go through a tower that's 20 miles away. Uh, in rural areas, there's so few towers, you see, that, you know, if, if you're trying to trace somebody's phone calls, they could be many, many, many miles away from from the tower. So, you know, when you make a phone call, it's not obvious exactly where you are. I mean, you would be uh, seen to be, say, in San Francisco, but closer than that, not clear. And people just really don't know that. And the problem is that, you know, if you put a defense expert on the on the stand in a case, uh, the complications of explaining how all this works, just, you know, everyone's asleep. Right. And, um, you know, they'd rather just keep it simple and say that these things work. But in 2006, the National Academy of Sciences put out this report done by scientists who looked at, you know, DNA, fingerprints, all the forms of forensic evidence Mm -hmm. in criminal cases. And their conclusion in each separate case, DNA, fingerprints, and so on, was that these are very faulty instruments. And they are not uh, fallible. I mean, they're quite fallible. Mm -hmm. They're not reliable. And, you know, the defense bar, when we all looked at that, we went, my God, I mean, it's all out. But then 
the whole world went on just as if this report had never been issued. <laughs> you know? Because we all thought these conclusions, well, the judges will throw out every single piece of, you know, DNA and fingerprints and stuff. But no, everything went on as if nothing had happened. Oh, uh, because Very it's strange. It, well, it's so much easier. You know, that's that's the thing, and it's simpler. I wonder how, you know, again, we've uh, grown up with the somewhat romantic vision of the the FBI with their brilliant crime labs. I wonder how, if it, if there's a way to compare the accuracy of of forensic work now with say fifty or a hundred years ago, is it better now? Is it are there just as many mistakes? Are there more opportunities for mistakes? Any guess on that? Well. I don't know. You know, nobody's done any study, right. and also most of these techniques didn't exist a hundred years ago. Um, well, of <clears throat> course, know, fingerprints did. Yeah, um, but but as I said, you know, the National Academy of Sciences says fingerprints can be misinterpreted. So on that particular one, uh, you know, I don't really have any statistics, but I would say, well, maybe it's better than it used to be, but it doesn't mean that it's a hundred percent. Of course, there is. You no. know, so um, but there are certainly. Certainly the cell phone is, you know, well, I was gonna law ask enforcement's, you know, favorite tool these days, the Internet and cell phones. So, um, well, I'm not crazy about know, cell phones either. My, I, sometimes I threaten uh, to take my teenage daughter's cell phone and drive over it, but that's a whole separate issue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, yeah. this is... Oh, so, you know, there are all these... I mean, cell phones and the Internet really have uh, made policing so, you know, a good detective police detective, you know, I mean, you'd pull all the social media uh, off the Internet about the person. Um, the other thing is, you know, now there's a, there are national databases of criminal records. That certainly didn't exist before right. the Internet. Sure. Um, mm. You know, so the first thing they do when they arrest somebody is to check out their, their and believe me, it's so helpful. I mean, you can find out if somebody has ever been arrested anywhere in America, right? Whereas I, as a private investigator, see, I, I don't have access to that database. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's very hard for me to tell whether somebody has a national criminal record or not. I mean, I'd have to go to every uh, state and county individually. But, you know, that really helps uh, the police. So you get these, um, these you know, searches that they, in discovery, the defense has to see mm -hmm. whatever, sure. you know, paper the prosecutor has. So eventually you get these printouts of, you know, every time your defendant has been arrested, you know, anywhere in America. That the, certainly didn't exist. You know, anything yeah. that's based on the Internet didn't exist right. before the 90s. But that brings up, I imagine those, uh, there could be errors on that record. And, you know, you think about uh, various bad governments in the past, totalitarian, authoritarian governments, Nazi Germany or the countries that were behind the Iron Curtain, you know, East Germany and all. Uh, there was a great movie about that, the title of which escapes me, but uh, uh, private Other lives. People's Voices. Yes, Other People's Voices, thank you, or Other People's yeah. Lives. Uh, great movie. Oh, yeah, I think Other People's Lives, right. Yes, right. Gr great movie. Great movie. Yeah, I should yeah. see it again. And, you know, I wonder about the power of government here. You know, this is 21st century America. Uh, how did the, these smartphones uh, fit into this new reality, you say that they would have made the totalitarian rulers of the 21st, 20th century so happy. What is it about our smartphones and surveillance that would have made the totalitarian rulers of the 20th century really happy? 
Well, uh, okay, here's what you can get. Now, uh, it's very different in different states. And in California, the police have to have a, uh, a warrant to get your that's cell good. phone records. That's good. I think that's good. <laughs> yes, yes, that's good. That's good. But on the other hand, what do they get? They get not only every single call that you made and every single call that came into your phone, but they get all the text messages, all your emails, anything that's on your phone. And so you couldn't do that with a landline. You know, you actually had to wiretap the phone um, in order to find out who uh, who the person was talking to. Um, so, you know, the, and, and then you get the locations also. You get all the GPS stuff. So, you know, it does, I mean, I, I had a case, I write about this in the article, where there was actually no uh, direct evidence in this case of the suspect murdering his girlfriend, uh, meaning no fingerprints, no DNA, no body, no, uh, actually the body was found much later. But so, but what did they have? They had all the phone records. And the phone records um, and the video surveillance, I mean, you know, walk around your town. I, I don't know, maybe not in New Hampshire, but here. Oh, no, it's everywhere. You know, in the East Bay, I mean, there's a, there's a surveillance uh, camera on every single business. Oh, yeah. A lot of houses, a lot of, you know, at the corner, there's the, you know. So the, the Oakland police could make a map of the suspect driving around Oakland, uh, you know, which was a map based on surveillance cameras, seeing the car. And then uh, they, uh, you know, and then, the, then the, the suspect drove across a couple of bridges, bingo, you know, pictures of the license plate uh, of the car. And um, then, you know, he drives up to where he's going to supposedly dump the body and he doesn't notice that there's a Cal Fire uh, video camera there, you know, which is on 24-7 uh, looking for the beginnings of brush fires in this area that's apparently pretty dry. So, you know, that camera gets the car. And then meanwhile, the, the, um, the child, or the teenager of the victim, uh, has been tracking her mother's uh, cell phone which is in the car. And so, you know, they've got the all the cell phone tire. That's how they found the body, was that the, uh, you know, the, the GPS and all the locating, find my cell phone, uh, find my iPhone, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, gives them records all the way up to the where the body was left. And then uh, the suspect took her phone, so it <laughs> comes back down to Oakland. I mean, so... You know, the guy was convicted in an hour right? I mean, well, because of all this technology. And uh, and that's all there was. There was only technology. There was there were no witnesses. There was nothing. So what they found him guilty. It sounds like he probably was guilty, but it wasn't traditional evidence. It was circumstantial uh, evidence. Yes. What, what, what's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? I mean, it's good they got the guy. What, well, I mean, what's we troubling about that? If he, we actually don't really know if he killed her since, you know, there's no, there's only this mapping technology stuff. 
Um, and you could imagine some mistakes there. I mean, she could have been killed by someone else. Um, and the phone was in the car. Um, I mean, you know, like all these things, it's good and bad. I mean, it helps you find the bad guys, but it's, it can be, you know, very, very open to manipulation and um, creating problems of its own. Um, you know, I don't think, uh, I think a jury really paid attention to how the, you know, how far away somebody could be from the cell phones and stuff might have some reasonable doubt in that case. Um because there really wasn't anything else. Um, so, yeah, you know, if it catches a real bad guy, great. If it doesn't catch a real bad guy and catches a good guy, yeah. you know, then you're in trouble. And it's just much more intrusive and easier for the police and the FBI to get information about people, you know, and that can really lead to problems. It certainly can. And I, I have to believe there's a heck of a lot more good guys, innocent people, then bad guys, and we're all being tracked. What about body cameras on police? Today, when white cops shoot and kill unarmed black men, we have the video from that. No doubt this kind of behavior has gone on for decades without any detection. They've been you know, able to get away with it with impunity. Now, this is without question a good thing, is it not? Is there anything dangerous about that? Well, I mean, it's a good thing, but it doesn't do what people think it does. Uh, okay, just imagine uh, for a minute, you're a cop and you have a camera on your chest. and it's, Or you have a camera on the dashboard of your car. Right. And it's looking out. That's not going to tell you when you drew your gun or, you know, when you pointed it. At the you know person that you end up killing, um, it only really kind of tells you that the situation was chaotic. I mean, if you look at these things, yeah, I mean, right. what's much more useful are the bystanders with their with their iPhones. See, there's a good uh, uh, good point. You know, good example uh, because they actually are focused. You know, if the person isn't completely panicked uh, on the suspect or the cop or something like that, but. I mean, body cameras might tell you something about how the scenario developed a little bit. But again, as I said, it's looking outward. So it, you know, it might catch the suspect, uh, uh, the person that, you know, the victim or the suspect or whoever you're talking about, um, because it's looking out. But it's not going to, it's not going to be focused on the cop and when he drew his gun and when he shot the gun, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a part, very partial. And again, people uh, just think it solves everything. Boy, that is that is a little bit frightening. And, and of course, uh, you know, we've all at least heard of 1984 and Big Brother. And what's scary about that is, is and ominous is, you know, that somebody, some big faceless agency with a lot of people in it is gathering all this information and you don't know what information they gathered, how much it might be true or not. And then innocent people can be dragged up through uh, this Big Brother watching. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are talking about uh, big government, something that actually Republicans seem to love, an aspect of big government, big spying, plus the free market, the marketeers. Uh, you know, they, they opened up the Wild West as well. And we're talking with Judith Coburn. Uh, who is a former 
Private Eye, and here she wrote a piece on Tom Dispatch, which I recommend, titled Goodbye to All That, A Private Investigator Living in a Surveillance Culture. And uh, as we talk about marketing, again, it's not just government, but and certainly uh, under the Trump administration, there ain't no rules on anything. You know, they're just regulations. Forget about it. The FCC is not doing anything. All these government agencies, they're not playing watchdog at all. And one of the biggies, of course, these days is is Jeff Bezos' little project, Amazon, which is now marketing a surveillance camera with facial recognition abilities. You write about that. Now, if that becomes in widespread civilian use, what unique problems and dangers might that activate? Well, misinformation. I mean, you know, uh, again, I mean, if the public starts saying, I'm going to find my ex-girlfriend who dumped me on Facebook, and then you start using facial recognition techniques on you know, group photographs of partying in, you know, Cabo, uh, pictures people have put up on, you know, on Facebook uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, you're liable to make mistakes. You're, you know, the, the technology just isn't that good yet. Wow. And, um, you know, the cops couldn't misidentify people, um, you know, in the same way. So, uh, but also, I mean, think about this at a demonstration. I mean, yes. you know, if, if the police want to find out who's uh, who the activists in town are, you know, they just take a lot of photographs and then use facial recognition and try to spot who those people are. And, you know, that raises questions as to whether, you know, you're under survey. Of course, we always knew cops would be at a demonstration with just a camera, you know, but oh, yeah. when you've got facial recognition, then, uh, you know, they can really find out who you are. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think the government should know whether I'm at a demonstration or not. It's none of their damn business. I do think um, we have those rights to dissent. Yes, that's part of being an American, no question about it. And I, I will say you're bringing up memories of uh, being at various demonstrations against the war in Vietnam. And there were police helicopters going around and around and around with the big doors open with video cameras. They were clearly trying to get a picture of everybody there. So this is just uh, higher tech than that. And, you know, I can't imagine the number of hours it must have taken some bureaucrat to go through the photographs. But this facial yeah. recognition stuff makes it a heck of a lot easier. And uh, Well, it's all done by computers. I mean, when you said, you know, there's a big, you know, a big government office with tons of people, no. <laughs> there's a big government office with lots of servers. And it's used <laughs> software people. You know, this is not... This is uh, this is not uh, you know just like I mean it always amuses me because when I used to uh, not remove my cookies so I did get targeted ads. Yeah. Um, the New York Times could not make up their mind whether I was male or female, and they definitely <laughs> their their algorithms are not gender fluid. How do I know this? One day I get uh, uh, ads for uh, men's underpants. The next <laughs> the next day I would get ads ads for, uh, you know, for female underwear. And then when you look at recommended for you, I mean, that's really interesting. Oh, right. Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's kind of hilarious. I mean, because they do, they make a lot of mistakes, and you can just see the mistakes that way. So if I want to find out so. what, what they 
think of me, what is known about me. I just look at what is trying to be sold on me on the Internet. Oh, my That's goodness. Right. That's so That's right. It's amusing. It's weird. And it's kind of frightening as well, because I really do value privacy. I mean, what that woman who's running for, for Congress talked about, you know, her real private stuff. And you don't want some of your private things to get out there in the public. I mean, everybody does embarrassing things from time to time. Shocker, I know. But, you know, it's supposed to be private. And that's one thing that I think Americans really, really value. And I'm not sure they do. Why is everybody on Facebook? I mean, because, you know, there's just report after report after report about these revenge operations that, you know, pissed off lovers do by taking stuff off of Facebook. And how about how about revenge porn, you know? Oh, God, yeah. People who would permit themselves to be uh, yeah. photographed with, you know, nude with their boyfriend or even having sex and stuff, and then it turns out on the Internet. I mean, people don't pay attention. They really don't. Yeah, that... They like... They like whatever Facebook does for them better than privacy. Oh, my. Well, people oftentimes do like publicity, I suppose. (laughs) They used to say about particular candidates, don't get between him or her and a news camera. You know, it's a dangerous place to be because people want their pictures taken. And we have this romantic vision of private eyes. Uh, Raymond Chandler, Sue Grafton, uh, the Maltese Falcon. You know, if I understand correctly, one of the standard reasons people hire private eyes is to find out if their spouse is having an affair. But that's personal stuff, not criminal or of interest to governments or marketers. How does the new surveillance culture affect that? And what what might that mean for privacy about s- such things? Well, um, I can talk about that in general. I, When I was starting out, I did a couple of cases like that, and I thought it was so odious and such a violation of people's privacy, even if they were womanizing and bad guys or bad gals, actually. I did, one on, uh, I did a surveillance on a woman who was lying about uh, not having a job so she could get more alimony from her ex-husband. But... Mm-hmm. I, I just don't do those. But again, uh, you know, with all this, uh, these data brokers, you can find out quite a bit about somebody. Um, you know, you, if you hire a PI who has access to these things, um, you can find out quite a bit uh, about somebody. And, you know, unfortunately, in the realm of battered spouses and stuff, you can find out where somebody lives. Uh, you know, which I feel like, I don't know how you would do that, but if somebody has Mm. uh, been involved in a domestic violence thing, I don't think that, you know, the addresses of those people should should be available. Um, And, you know, it's supposed to be controlled by, well, the PI who finds the information, you know, is a professional and is not going to reveal that, but I'm not so sure about that in every case. Um, so, you know, it's definitely, I can, uh, you know, and then you get into PIs, do you take this case or not that, you know, and why, and, you know, it, it can feel kind of ridiculous given how much we're surveilled already by these huge systems that we don't have any power over, um, like Facebook and, you know, Amazon and everything else. Uh, it seems kind of ridiculous to be sitting at your desk and, in California and going, well, I don't think that case is really very ethical. <laughs> you 
<laughs> I may be the only person asking those questions. I don't know. Um, yeah. But, you know, every single one of these technological innovations uh, involves, you know, a kind of a miraculous side of what you can find out or how you could use it, and then a really dark side. And they just seem to come together. Yeah, there there certainly is that dark side, and, and certainly, you know, victims of domestic violence. That's some really, really frightening stuff, I must say, and I hadn't really thought about that. But uh, opening up all that information, and, and privacy is more difficult now. It, it, it clearly is more difficult. And, you know, I did a lot of preparation for this uh, show, and when I was finishing, just this came in on uh, from an email from a company selling cybersecurity called Area One Security, which is out in California, I discovered. Well, and it said, here's this, this email I got from them, which says, while most of the cybersecurity is focused on federal campaigns, candidates in state and local races remain fishing targets, and a few candidates for governor have taken serious preemptive steps to secure themselves. I find that fascinating. I was, you know, just the timing of that. How is this pervasive surveillance likely to affect political campaigns from here on out, I mean, even state-level campaigns. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, uh, there's something called opposition research. Of course, um, that's been there forever. research is, you know, what a oh, sure. candidate does on, you know, the opposing candidate. And sure. I actually, <laughs> I did opposition research on Hubert Humphrey. Oh, my. McCarthy campaign. Good for you. <laughs> you're, you're old enough to know about oh, yeah. that. Yes. And, um, but, you know, it was all from public sources. But see, now, again, uh, you know, you can get on these databases. You can, uh, you know, you can find out people's locations. You can, you know, there's just a lot uh, more you can find out. Um, and then there's the international aspect of this. I mean... Uh, you know, in the old days before the Internet, I mean, you would really have to work hard to get any information from overseas about somebody. You know, say you were uh, doing opposition research on Paul Manafort. I'll just use that. He's not running for office, so we'll no. use that as an example. Sure. Well, you know, you it would be, before the Internet, it would be very, very hard to find uh, what he was doing in the Ukraine if you could even find out he was doing anything in the Ukraine, because it would all have to be from these public paper sources and stuff. Now you just get on the Internet and, you know, go to it. And all these these younger investigative journalists who work for the, you know, the good papers and stuff, I mean, they're just uh, whizzes at finding, uh, you know, banking information and, you know, and then there's all the leaks of the Panama Papers and stuff. I mean, they're... You know, it's a heyday for people who want to find out about uh, reporters who want to find out about money laundering and stuff, because there's all this leaking going on, and then, you know, and then people are, unlike in the old competitive days, you know, there are these groups of journalists now that are sharing information Mm. um, around corruption and, you know, the various leaking that's going on about that. So, you know, there's... I've heard people say that hey, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't mind all these cameras and all this surveillance. What's your response to that? Well, on one level it's true, but on another level you never know. I mean, are you going to get, you know, 
maybe maybe you might get divorced ten years from now, and suddenly all your stuff is out there. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but yeah, it's true. It's not very real to most people. Um, wow. You know, and in terms of the candidates, one thing that's been going on is a lot, and the Russians were doing this in 2016. Everybody wants the opposing candidates' uh, voting data yeah, and, you know, sure. all the interviews that they've done with voters and stuff like that. It really that's okay. tells you a lot. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of hacking is going on around that. Um you know, trying to get that kind of information, not so much, um, you know, he slept with this person or he slept with that person, although that's out there, too. Oh, <laughs> but, it certainly is. And people... But the data, you know, these campaigns are so data-run at this point that if you can get, uh, the, you know, the data that the opponent is using, it tells you a lot about their strategy and stuff. Well, that's um, true. There's, there's a group, actually, I was impressed that, you know, it, it's a liberal organization, and they gather data about for identifying voters. So they look at right. what magazines you subscribe to, all different things, and they can really target and focus in to get out the people who are going to vote for the most liberal candidate. So it's going right. on all no, around. No, everybody's doing it, yeah. Everybody's doing it, so I guess it's okay. <laughs> now, all well, this, I don't know about that. No, I, I was... feel a little different about, you know, if, if the Democratic Party does it, I feel a little different about it than the Russians doing it. True. That's the problem. True, but who know, you don't know who's doing it. And all this dark surveillance has led many people to the conclusion that there's a shadowy entity called the Deep State. What's your reaction <laughs> yeah. to that? Uh, well, it's complicated, because I do think that there is, I'll just say, in the United States. I mean, I think that, you know, that there's a bureaucracy that, you know, is pretty much in place all the time. It tends to only want to kind of defend itself. But, you know, there are a lot of a lot of people in the bureaucracy that are that are uh, sort of keeping Trump a little bit off edge or not doing exactly what he says he wants, you know, he wants to do and stuff. But I don't think that's some deep state that runs the entire world. I mean, to me, conspiracy theories are always way too simple. Yes. You know? <laughs> things things happen randomly all the time that these, you know, and, and also they they think if there's a kind of a theoretical connection, you know, all these conspiracy theories about Vincent Foster, oh, yeah. you know, who was, worked for the Clintons and committed suicide, and then there's this poor kid who was killed on the streets of Washington, and, you know, the right wing is saying that, you know, that he was all connected with the Clintons. I mean, conspiracy theories, people think if you could imagine a connection between two random events, then that's, you know, then it is a real connection. Well, and it just really doesn't work that way. No, I mean, so it's it's kind of worse than a deep state, because a deep state would have to be organized Whereas this sounds like, as you say, the Wild West. And uh, you pose a worrisome question. Is there still any right to be forgotten, as the Europeans call it? Is there any privacy left, let alone a right to privacy? What do they mean by a right to be forgotten? And what is the status of that? Well, I mean, in Europe, they actually are trying to figure out how to allow people to withdraw from this crazy system, uh, you know, of everybody following everybody around and, you know, spying on them and stuff. And 
You know, I mean, you see in the case of Elsa Ferrante, I'll just use her, you know, her name that she wanted to use on her books. I mean, you know, a journalist went after that and found out who she was. Well, what's the point of that? You know, I mean, obviously, if the woman's writing under a pseudonym, she wants, you know, not to be in public. And I think that case set off a lot of the Europeans who say that, you know, not everybody wants the same thing. You know, if you want to put your nude pictures on Facebook, okay, you know. But how about somebody who doesn't, yeah. you know, want to be on Facebook or doesn't want to be greeted? I mean, I find it really creepy, these ads, you know, that I get when I'm just on the Internet trying to do some work and stuff. I, I You know, it just reminds me every time I look at one of them that somebody's monitoring me. Yeah. Um, you know, and I I don't like that, but a lot of people don't care. You know, um, I guess we. I wonder what would uh, you prescribe? What can be done about us? I mean, you use a computer. I use a computer. You don't use Facebook. I use Facebook. But what what can people do? Are there? Is this something that, say, Congress could could take up to protect people, or is it too late for that? Do you think? Oh, I think it's way too late, and mm-hmm. the the tech companies have too much power. You know, there'll just be these little, you know, laws, little nibbling around the corner. I mean, we're not even as serious as the Europeans are about this. And they can't figure out how to control it. You know, it's it's very difficult to control. I mean, I think there are very limited things you can do if you want to. And the, the New York Times actually has a really good tech guy who every once in a while does, uh, you know, a column about cookies or this particular kind of, you know, fix you can do on your computer. You can change, you know. You, you know, he had a column about how you can change all your privacy settings on Google, and then AP comes out and says they still keep your stuff. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's like, if it makes you feel better, you can do it. I mean, I do do the cookie thing, but it's a little bit of a revenge thing. I just go, take that. You know? Oh, my goodness. Well, this has been a... I have no illusions. I have no illusions this is really going to do anything. But, um it's... You know, I really don't think there is much you can do, um, except to monitor, I suppose, what you put on the Internet, because I can't tell you. I mean, there is this disconnect between what people what people think they're doing when they put stuff on Facebook and then the later consequences of this and the classic ones, which we haven't heard much about recently because it had all been done like crazy. But when Facebook started, all the college kids with pictures of themselves drunk and, you know, mm-hmm. nude and all this other kind of stuff, and then they go into a job interview, <laughs> and this stuff is all out there. I mean, I do background checks for some unions when they want to hire somebody, and the first thing I do is look at the person's social media, <sighs> you know, know, and then it's up to the union whether they want to hire somebody who's Facebook, um, you know, feed is full of nude pictures in Cabo, but... Uh, you know, I, I had a case for an insurance company, and this woman claimed she was completely disabled in this car accident. And I went on social media, and there she was, bragging to all her friends about her ski trip to Peru. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a mixed blessing, as they say. Fascinating perspective from your point of view as a former private eye. Judith Coburn, uh, you want to read more of her stuff, uh, go to uh, Tom Dispatch. I don't know if there's any other place, but that's a good, good source. She writes for that regularly. Thank you so much for shedding light into this uh, dark subject. Thanks so much. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for inviting me on your show. Okay. Sounds great. All right. Thanks. Well,